What a story. Um, this is Judges. We've been, we're going to go through a few weeks in Judges. And, you know, there was nothing spiritual. I, I was just looking through all the sermons that I wrote, and I said, what's a book that I didn't really explore? And Judges is, was one of them. And it's such a fascinating book. Uh, as, you, as Matthew was reading, you were thinking, wow, that's a little PG-13, maybe rated R. Uh, definitely not one of those skits you want to do at a Christmas ch- preschool play with the kids. Um, but here's the pattern. If, if, if we're going to keep this slide up. This is a cycle in the, all the book of Judges. And we're going to leave this up. But you see, Israel is God's people. They are sacred. They are set apart. And they're in a land of foreigners. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in that time, God is trying to keep them sacred because he's raising up a people for himself following the Abraham and the covenant with uh, Abraham and to lead a people and to bring the Messiah. But if they go into a land, he knows their heart. They're very uh, tempted to explore different religions and gods, and they deviate and worship idols, false gods. But that's what exactly what happens you see in Judges. And when that happens, they become enslaved because God lifts his protection and foreign nations come. Today, it's the nation of Moab. And the king of Moab, his name is Eglon or Eglon. And so Israel cries out after 18 years of oppression. That's the age of some of you, you guys. Uh, some Biola students are just barely 19 and 18. Youth group students are not 18 yet. So for all of that time, they're crying out in tyranny and oppression. So as they cry out, what does God always do? God hears and raises up a judge. And so a judge rises up. And God uses that judge to deliver them. And here's the point of judges. That's not what, you know, what God wants us to know. These judges are not role models. If you look, as we go on, they get progressively worse. And the famous judge that you really don't want to follow after, his name is Samson, who was very, uh, very, very into other women and disobeyed God and was very narcissistic. And he... It saved and delivered Israel, but through a, ra- a very dark way. And at the book ends with justice, violence, and heartbreak. But this cycle continues. Israel's delivered because God raised up the judge, and then eventually Israel repeats the cycle again. Today, I want to talk about Ehud. And how many of you ever heard of the name Ehud, the judge? Just curious. Okay, good. It's like good, good number. So we're going to expo- focus on him. Right before Ehud was the most ideal judge, they say. That's his nickname, Othniel. And so you'll read the cycle, this cycle in his narrative. And then after him, Moab conquered, and they cried out, and God raised up Ehud. We know two things about Ehud. Uh, Some of you, as you were listening, you saw and listened to two things. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. And what was the other unique trait about Ehud? He was... He was left-handed. How many of you are left-handed? Now, oh, that's it? Really? There's only like two left-handed people in our church? Wow, okay. So be, being left-handed in some cultures is seen as like a handicap. So I remember in Korea, I heard stories where they tried to correct it. It's like a sickness, so they would try to make them learn with their right hand. Uh, other cultures um, you know, may see it as like, oh, there's something wrong with you. So we're going to talk about it. He was left-handed. But the story goes, Israel chooses Ehud to be the deliverer of the tribute. 
basically the enormous tax to the king. And the tribute communicated this. Don't you ever forget this, Israel. I'm the king. I could take whatever I want. So it's this humiliating job to be the deliverer of the tribute to Moabite king and say, yes, king, we are your people. But Ehud was a God-raised judge. So he had a plan. The Bible tells us he didn't even have a weapon, so he made his own double-edged sword. Now, if you're a righty and you're like a knight or a soldier, where do you put the sword? If you're a righty, you put it on your left side. So if you see knights, they climb the horses on the left side because a sword is dangling. So if you're a righty, you could easily unsheathe the sword, right? So being a left-handed man, he creates like a 16 to 18-inch dagger, which is around this long, and he puts it under his thigh and straps it on with zip ties and duct tape because they had that back then and just puts it there. And so he goes to the king, and the guards of the king are like, all right, let's, let's pat him down. And they make sure they check his left side because they don't know he's a lefty. And they're like, he's clean. And so they make this false assumption. Oh, this guy must be a right-handed man, and he's clear. So they let him into the king's chambers. Ehud delivers a tribute, take care, see you later, and he's leaving and as he's out, he says to his crew, you guys go on ahead. I got to go back and tell the king something. I have a message for you. Now, it reminds me of the Godfather. This is from Corleone, you know. There's like this, like, I have a message for you from God. And, and, and King Aegon is like, get out. Everybody get out. He wants this special message. And then Ehud says, this message is from God. And then you can tell Eglon is a little bit intrigued and worried and kind of startled because from God, he starts standing up, and that's when Ehud thrusts his dagger from his left side into him. And so the graphic nature of it is he was so large, the knife and the handle and his hand went all the way through. Some Bible versions say the knife came out. Some versions say his visceral intestines came out. And in ESV, it says his dung came out. Either way, that's not the most important thing. King's dead. The king cannot survive that. The guards made a second assumption, though, because they're like, it's awfully quiet in there. So they said, he must be doing number two. He must be on the bathroom, the royal throne, you know, the other throne, and doing his business, so let's leave him be. We don't want to embarrass him. And that's what Ehud uses to flee and escape. And so Ehud goes to his people, they rally, Israelites rally, they fight back, and Moabites uh, are stuck in this river, and they overwhelm them, and Israel is delivered. For 80 years, the longest peace in all of Judges, Ehud, this left-handed son of a Benjamite tribe, delivered Israel. And this is God's delivering power. What are we to learn of this story? And so um, you could see the visual, and, and some of you, uh, you know, are wondering, like, wow, I didn't know the Bible could be so graphic. And this is the realness of it. There's a lot of poetry here. The author of Judges, he didn't just write eyewitness account, but there was a lot of um, wordplay. In fact, the word, the name Eglon means a battened calf, like the word that you use to give a sacrifice to God. And so there's a connection with that Eglon was a large man. Um, 
the name Ehud, it's very interesting. You know what Ehud means? It means, well, well Ehud, Ehud is Ehud, but he's a Benjamite. And Benjamin means the son of the right hand. So Ehud is literally a left-handed man who is a son of the right hand. So there's like this word play, and that's what happens. God uses his weird irony of Ehud to deliver him. And so I wanted to share with us just this couple of things meditating on this. What is God trying to teach us from this? What, from this story that God used in history? And first, you, we've heard this saying. How many of you heard this saying, God's ways are not our ways? We've heard that, right? How many of you heard, God works in mysterious ways, right? You've heard that? I'm looking for a parking spot in Christmas at Cerritos Mall, and a car just came out. He works in mysterious ways. Um, but we do know this about God. All throughout the Bible, you always see God using the most unusual people for his work. A Jewish baby boy that was supposed to be fed to the crocodiles, thrown into, you know, the Nile, is floating down by his mother and picked up by who? Of all the people, the Pharaoh who gave this instruction to kill Jewish boys, his daughter. It's just a weird thing. Uh, if you're a son of, if you're the seventh son of seven boys in a family, who is the strongest? Who, is, who does the culture say is like the, the, the strength of the family, the next generation, the firstborn son, yes? I'm, I'm the youngest son. My, I have an older brother, and I see that in my family. Uh, my, my mom dotes on my bigger brother, and I'm, just, I'm that little runt. I'm not jealous, and I have issues. But, you know, the Bible, what does the Bible use? There's seven brothers, son of Jesse. And he's looking for the next king. No, 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 no. Is there anyone left? There's a little dork, <laughs> the runt, attending the sheep. What's his name? David, bring him to me. There's our king. And you see a, a 14, 15-year-old virgin betrothed to a Jewish boy from Nazareth. And God uses her. Not this royalty, not this princess on a palace, but her to deliver the Messiah. God works in crazy, mysterious ways. 1 Corinthians 1.27 tells us why. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Amen? And then God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And I think God does that because he wants everyone in the world to know, I will do my will and fulfill my work, not through your strength and your intelligence, your technology, but through the weak so that all the glory goes to me. And that's the way God works. So Ehud was a left-handed man, and scholars are wondering, what does that mean? And left-handed man could be, in some cultures, seen as a negative. Some scholars actually think left-handed could mean cripple. He was crippled. So he was left-handed. And so either way, because of this difference and this uh, atypical nature of Ehud, this weakness in society, he wasn't a military man. He was a guy who delivered the taxes. <laughs> he wasn't a general. God used this weak vessel to be the judge to deliver Israel. Raise your hand if you have a weakness. Anyway, you, no, not all. I, you see a weakness in this? All right, we all have a weakness, don't we? Every single one of us. And our weakness changes over time. Some of you think my age is a weakness. I'm too young. All of a sudden, I'm too old. That's not a weakness. 
but we have these perceptions of weakness. Um, and so when I came from Korea, one of the first weaknesses that was glaring in living in America in 1979-80 was what? I don't know how to communicate to these people. You know, my parents never went to a parents' teacher conference, thanks be to God, because I was a troublemaker. So guess who had to go? My sister. And then she would translate everything that I did. I talked, I get in trouble. <laughs> and so my parents, this weakness was like, how do I convey and communicate and do business in a foreign land? We have these weaknesses that we think is a weakness. Maybe some of us are physically have a handicap. Some of us our weaknesses are family lineage. Some of you have a past and you're like, I hope no one ever finds out. Some of us, our weakness could be like, man, we don't have the money and we're oh, just, we, we don't, we can't have any. And we, we think like this. We have so many weaknesses and we're stressed out and anxious. And so what do we do with them? We, we, we cover them up. We, we try to fix it or remove it. Some of us accept it in this like, just depressed state, like, oh, I don't know, I give up. But what if God can use what we think is a weakness? And so, fast forward 25 years, my mom and dad try to teach me Korean and English, and I'm still not fluent, but wow, what a difference learning, having two languages. It's not a weakness, it's a strength. In fact, I, I met a young adult, uh, he never took uh, studies and training in ophthalmology, but he learned three languages. He went to Germany to learn, learn German, and he learned he knew Spanish and English, but he learned German from just his own personal venture. Came back, hey, Pat, PJ, I, I know German. I was like, okay. He gets a job at LASIK, one of the best companies, at a high-paying position because of this situation. And so languages that we think is a weakness can be a strength. So young men and women, start getting Duolingo and learn as many languages as you can. And so we have these weaknesses of family struggles, addictions. God can't use me. I'm a left-handed man. But what do we see God doing? We have opportunities to serve God, and God leverages that. How many, there's an organization called Homeboy Ministries in L.A., Dr. Father Boyle, you know what he does? He takes ex-gang members, gives them a job, and he built this industry, literally a corporation. And guess who he floods the employees with? Ex-cons, ex-gang members, tatted up. And these people who the society like said, them, oh. I don't know, I messed up, look at my past. God says, give it to me. My power is made perfect. Just, you just deliver that over to God. Another lesson here in Judges 3 is this. Ehud is leaving, and there's something in this chapter that's striking, and commentary highlighted this, and I was like, wow. In verse 19 and 26, it says he passed by their stone idols of Moab. Why would they mention that? Verse 19, but Ehud, he himself turned back at the idols of Gilgal. So he went there, and he said, you guys keep going. I'm going to go back, and I got a purpose, and he's going to go kill the king right in front of a statue. After he kills the king, he's running out, and then verse 26 says, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols. Why would the commentator say that? Why doesn't he just say they, he fled and left Moab city? It's almost as if the two idols 
are standing there in the critical moments of this story where the king is about to be killed, the king was killed, that God is using Ehud to say, you guys think you guys are something? You, you gods who sit on statues, you think you're something? Right in front of their faces, he's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to take down your king. And as he flees right in front of it, I just took down your king. And this is God's judgment upon these false gods that you think you're something, but before the true God, God is making this statement to the world, you are powerless. And that makes us feel amazing, that our God is the true, mighty, living, and only God of this world. All other gods fall. In fact, a few hundred years later, Isaiah uh, shares this message to Israel, and God speaks to Isaiah, and he says these words. Bel, which is a god, foreign god of, I think, Babylon, bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. Did you catch that? These gods are, have to be carried by oxen. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow. They cannot save the burden, but themselves they go into captivity. Now, this is God making fun of every other God. You have to be carried. They're not really gods at all. And God continues through Isaiah. Listen to this. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. Listen. All the remnants of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he to the gray hairs. I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. What is God saying here? What did you hear three times? These gods have to be carried. You know what kind of God I am? I am a God who carries you. And we say, thank you, Jesus. Because our life is so feeble, we cannot carry ourselves. But we worship a God who carries. Every salvation, every deliverance from your bondage or addiction, everything in your life that had evil, that God broke, Every time that there was a moment where you saw a critical, just a world collapsing on you and God got you out of it, was God carrying you. My salvation was God carrying me. In other words, money and health will ultimately fail us. Even family and friends will fail us. Careers will fail us. Your reputation will fail you. But God and his word lasts forever. And the church said, amen. This is the God that delivered Israel from Moab. And Ehud is walking back and forth in front of their gods. You stay there, uh, old statue. You got nothing and you can't protect them. God's on a roll here. What would it look like if we lived like this? I know I don't. I struggle with that faith. Gosh, every moment I want to be like, wait a minute. Let me take a deep breath. Who's in charge? God who carries us. Remember the poem, Footprints in the Sand? You know, I saw two footprints in the hard times of my life. I only saw one set of footprints. Jesus, where were you? And Jesus says, my child. Just like that. Um, it was in those moments that what? I was carrying you. A beautiful. It was, this is God who carries us. That's the God we worship. God doesn't need us. I mean, I just got to get this to our world. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our money. He invites us because he is so good. He is life. 
He invites us to recognize that all that we have is His. He recognizes he wants us to recognize that no matter how dark the world gets in Christ, you will never let death defeat you. You are the resurrected people. Just one last thing, one more thing, and it's this. The fact that salvation came in the most unexpected ways, this is the gospel. Uh, if you think you're here and you're right with God because you lived a good life, you went to church, and you're, you're not as scumbag and sleazy as those people. You don't know the gospel. The, the point of this story is Israel could not save themselves. They were delivered and saved with nothing, no contribution. And they were delivered of all people by a left-handed man. And so the Bible says this in Isaiah 53, 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Who is the Bible talking about? The suffering servant. The foreshadowing of Jesus. The one who delivers us from sin and death once and for all. And I have this joy. And I pray this joy for you. I pray this joy for the world. It's not by a handsome, good-looking, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus figure in a Hollywood movie. But it was somebody who is no attraction, no appeal... That anyone should be drawn to him, and that shoot of Jesse would be the one where everyone abandoned that brings salvation to this world. We're not Christians because we're cool. Can we just admit that? Like, I, I, I hope you're not here because, like, boy, this church is rocking. That's not what makes church cool. You know what makes church beautiful and cool? This non-attractive to the world Jesus, who is a son of God incarnate. In the most unexpected way, born in a manger, raised to life, a left-handed leader, if you will, like him? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He's the one that takes down all the idols and breaks down the wall of sin and brings us to Christ. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He made it white as snow. I don't want anything else in this world. There's no other thing to desire. This Ehud is a foreshadowing that you will also have a deliverer. His name is Jesus. And so, friends, just the three takeaways. Your weakness to you and what the world says is a weakness is a strength to God. Whenever we see things that we feel that are our treasure and our God, they will fail us, but God carries us. And the reason why we could worship like this is because Jesus Christ is this unattractive to the world, but he's so beautiful when sinners open their eyes and realize there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, my deliverer, my salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, We have been freed from the bondage of sin and death. You did not shove a blade into a rival king, but you accepted the nails through your pierced hands and feet for us. You did not come with military conquest to deliver us, but you laid it all down so that we could live.
And by your wounds, Isaiah 53 continues, we are healed. Lord, if this is our hope and treasure, I don't think we will ever be able to face despair and discouragement because you are who you say you are and you are more than enough. God, may that not only sit with us so that we could live with courage and boldness for the world's redemption that you're trying to continue to do, but may that go into the world. May we be messengers of this truth, that we don't sit here receiving this blessing, but realize we have been called to be part of your plan to share and to deliver them from the bondages. God, may we be a church that is mobilized and active, May we be a church that simply doesn't gather for worship, but we're activated by the freedom we have in Jesus to be your hands and feet. And God, may we tell the world that deliverance is here. He has come, and he's available. And we want to live it. We want to proclaim it. We want to show it. God, thank you so much. This is good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.